Come on, Rob. Am I coming through now? All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, as we come before you this morning to hear your word preached and proclaimed, Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us and that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak. And Father, as, as we meditate on the slaughter of the innocents, on this great tragedy, on what it means for us, on what it means to us. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what to what you want to teach us this morning, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us that would not be my words, but your words. These teachings are hard. And sometimes this passage, or oftentimes this passage, is skipped over. It's just a story. It's a hard story. It doesn't seem to have a ton of theology in it, and yet it has so much to offer us. Help us to mine it for all it's worth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is an interesting passage. Uh, that's why I enjoy uh, the Christmas season. If you've not been uh, with us for Christmas, there are 12 days of Christmas. Uh, we don't really care about the secular world and their Christmas season. The church does not. The church universal does not. Uh, we have 12 days of Christmas for a reason. That's why you sing the 12 days of Christmas. Because we're focusing on the incarnation and what the incarnation means, and what it meant that Jesus was here. And really, the message is not about gifts and Santa Claus and those kinds of things. It's really about who Jesus was and why he came, and really focusing on, on the birth narratives. Those are kind of the themes of the Christmas season. And so that's why we take some time here. Now, during the rest of the other times of the year, I'll focus on books and I'll focus on other things. But here, we just kind of zero in and remind ourselves who Jesus is, why he came, and what it meant that he was incarnate. And this particular passage, as I prayed, is a difficult passage. It's often skipped. Uh, I haven't heard many people preach on it through my time. And I've heard a lot of pastors preach on the Gospels. The flight to Egypt is what this section is called. It comes after the Magi visiting. And the flight to Egypt is in this Gospel. It comes on the heels of the Magi. The Magi are the wise men. In Christian lore, there are three wise men. I say Christian lore because we don't know how many wise men they were. We think we know what the Magi were. I've had a whole other sermon on the Magi. I'll talk about them another time. But the Magi come from the east and they're following a star. It shows us that there was penetration of the Lord's word much further than we originally thought. So somehow there was a penetration of the Lord's word and these pagans come to worship 
God. They come to see the Christ child. Now, they had just left, and for their purposes, they have a part to play in our story this morning, but just a very small part because we're going we're gonna to focus on their visit to Herod, and then we're going to take off a little bit from there. Our focus this morning is going to be on the reason that Joseph has to take Jesus and his family to flee to Egypt. And for that, we need to look back earlier into the chapter at Herod and then dig back a little bit further into the Old Testament. And that may surprise you. This passage is very much connected to the Old Testament. And it turns out that we're going to have to dig back to a surprising place, not to the prophets, as you might expect. Matthew was just pregnant with prophecy. The Gospel of Matthew is pregnant with prophecy. A lot of the Gospels are pregnant with prophecy. Matthew especially is pregnant with prophecy. And prophecy was just mentioned here, so we are going to talk about the prophets. But Matthew is really pointing us to something much different. This story is linked to a much earlier book indeed. And as such, the story shows us the value and importance of Christians reading and understanding the Old Testament. That's why in our daily lectionary, if you follow the daily lectionary, they have Old Testament readings, they have a Psalm reading, they have a New Testament reading. Do you read your Bible every day? Do you read your Bible several times a week? Do you read your Bible at all except on Sundays? You should. You should be reading it. Are you doing a Bible study? You should be going to someone's Bible study. You should be studying the Bible with other believers. Why? Because we learn to mine the riches and the depths of Scripture. I hear all kinds of excuses from Christians on why they aren't doing Bible studies. And here's the main excuse. This is the main excuse. You have all these other excuses, but the primary excuse is, I'm too lazy to do it. Right? I can come up with a million excuses, right? But there are other things you're doing in your lives that are very important to you. And you're never going to miss those things, but you do miss the Bible. If you're not reading your Bible, it's strictly laziness. You need to be reading and studying your Bible. You should also probably be doing a Bible study. Now, sometimes it's hard to get there, but you should at least be doing your devotionals. There is no excuse not to be reading your Bible as a Christian. Five minutes a day is a good way to start. Read your Bible five minutes a day. Just start that way. Or if you can't do five minutes a day, try five minutes every other day. Start reading your Bible somehow, some way. It's so critical to us. If I could tell you that the God of the universe, the God of the universe would speak to you, if I would say that the President of the United States would call you for five minutes every day, would you make time to talk to him? Would you do it? If the leaders of this world were going to call you for five minutes Every day, would you make time for it? Of course you would. How about if the God of the universe was going to be able to talk to you for five minutes every day? Would you make time for it? Make time to read the Bible and to pray. And so the Old Testament becomes very critical to us and to understanding the New Testament. You cannot understand the Gospel of Matthew If you don't understand or fully understand the Gospel of Matthew, you can understand some things if you don't understand the Old Testament. Because you really can't understand the meaning of the New Testament and the coming of Jesus without understanding the Old Testament. In our story this morning, the two are intricately linked. Because in the story of Jesus in our account this morning is prophesied about, or perhaps a better way of saying it, 
is it's completing the story of the Hebrew people in the Exodus account. Do you follow me? It's completing the story of the Hebrew people in the Exodus account. That's what's really going on in this passage this morning. Exodus through Deuteronomy. And this is one of the major themes in the Gospel of Matthew. So to understand Matthew, you need to understand that Matthew is really intricately woven with Exodus through Deuteronomy, right? Really kind of also points to Genesis, but Exodus through Deuteronomy are very big to Matthew. Now the account in Matthew opens with the Magi visiting Herod about this, Matthew 2, 1 through 5. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now this is a critical statement. doesn't seem that critical, but it's critical to Herod. This statement right here, king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, Christ here means Messiah, so where the Messiah was to be born. So here you have the king of the Jews, Herod, upset because the Magi are saying, where is the king of the Jews to be born? And so he inquires of his scribes, his scholars, where is the Messiah to be born? So he links Christ, the Messiah, with the king of the Jews, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Now Herod and Jerusalem are troubled, we're told. Why is Jerusalem troubled? Well, we don't know. And what does the troubling of Jerusalem mean? We're also unsure. What does it mean that they're troubled? Are they angry? Are they frightened? Are they discombobulated? We don't know. We kind of get a hint, though, a little bit later on with how Herod reacts to the coming of the king of the Jews. Fear is probably the major reaction. You see, King Herod wasn't a very good guy. Now, he's called the king of Israel. Now, this is very confusing to a lot of people. Why? Well, because we know who, is, who leads Israel at this point. The Romans. Well, how can you have a king of Israel if the Romans have just conquered Israel? And this is, this is where most people get a stigma. See, the Romans would put leaders over regions or territories. A proconsul, we would call him a governor. And they would put a governor. So Pontius Pilate was the governor or the leader over this area. But Herod, there's a different Herod when Jesus dies, the son of this Herod. Herod was the king over this region. He was given another title. Now this Herod is Herod the Great, not the same Herod who kills Jesus, or well, who, under whom Jesus dies. But this is Herod the Great. Now Herod the Great was actually got that, well he actually got the title Great because he helped conquer a lot of regions with several Roman leaders. He also helped build a lot of things in Jerusalem, including helping rebuild the temple. And so the Jews, with the Jews, he was a popular leader in a lot of ways. He had done a lot of things. But Herod was also not the greatest guy. He had a lot of wives. He was kind of like King Henry, right, the eighth. He, he also executed a few of his wives. And he killed a lot of his sons. So, aside from being a good leader in a lot of ways, he had a penchant for killing a few wives, 
you know, maybe they had some affairs, whatever. We're just going to execute a few. And his sons, well, he was a little worried they were going to take over the throne, so he just killed a few, right? Not a bad dad, right? Maybe a bad dad. So Herod's not the great guy, leading the governor of the area to say, I would rather be, and there was a play on words, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son, which is a play in Greek words because there's just one little difference. I'd rather be his weos than his huia. Anyway, his son than his pig, or pig than his son. He treats pigs, which are unclean animals in Jerusalem, better than his own sons. Herod is a bad guy in many ways. But he's a good ruler in other ways, which makes him very popular with the people. And here's the interesting thing. He's king of the Jews who helped rebuild the temple. And at first, it seems like he's very interested. Where is this king of the Jews to be born? And he has all the access to the scholars. And so this king of the Jews says, where's the Messiah to be born? So Herod understands this king of the Jews is to be the Messiah. And he looks to scripture and prophecy to find out where the Messiah is to be born. Do you follow the link? This is very critical. Scripture tells Herod where this child's to be born. This makes the reaction all the much more important. You see, Herod may claim to be a faithful Jew and even to have built the beautiful temple or built it up, but even when push comes to shove, there can only be one king on the throne of Herod's life. And so the continuing stream of angelic messengers that we began talking about on Christmas Eve, right? You have this series of angelic messengers that just come out of the darkness. Messenger after messenger after messenger. We had a messenger to John the Baptist, well, to Zechariah. And then we had a messenger to Mary. And then we had a messenger to Joseph. And then we have another messenger to the shepherds. We just messenger after messenger after messenger after messenger. And then we have a messenger here. Matthew 2:13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in the dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. It's very interesting to me in Christian theology through the centuries who becomes a very important figure, Mary. Mary becomes a very important figure because she replaces a lot of female deities and the Roman Catholic Church replaces those female deities with Mary. And so people begin to worship Mary in the place of those female deities. That's why she gets elevated. There's a whole theology we can actually trace the teaching and popes pushing this uh, with early Christian missionaries. Replacing pagan deities with Christian saints. And that's why these things get pushed away. Joseph gets forgotten. Why was Joseph chosen? And where does Joseph and what's his part in this story? Well, it turns out that Joseph's part is very important as protector of Jesus when he is young. He runs and he takes Jesus and the family and he protects them. Herod seeks to kill this baby even though, though he knows it's the fulfillment of his prophecy by a scholars, by, of a prophecy by scholars. And then Herod sends out an execution squad and this squad is going to kill every child under two in Bethlehem. Now understand, Bethlehem's a small town. It may have just been dozens of children. It may have been ten children. We're not sure how many children. It doesn't even register as a blip. And for this reason, 
a lot of um, uh, German uh, liberal scholars, uh, when I call German liberal, that's Christian liberal scholars, secular scholars or whatever, say, oh, this never happened. We don't have any record of it. Well, it turns out we don't have a lot of records of what happened in the first century, so we don't know. We don't know a lot of things that happened. We also know that this was a small town, and so it may not have even registered or it may have been swept under the rug. And so this slaughter of the children was probably small. It may have not even been that big a tragedy by ancient standards because there were certainly bigger slaughters that took place under Rome. But it would be a big slaughter by our standards, well, depending on how we look at it. I mean, we abort babies in the hundreds of thousands and here every year, and he's killing them in the dozens. But he does it all in the name of wiping out Jesus, the Son of God. In this act, he's fulfilling a prophecy as well. And he doesn't know it. He's unwittingly playing into the flow of redemptive history. And that's what's so odd about this. Even the enemy of the Lord is playing into a prophecy. Matthew quotes the prophecy, Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So the prophecy goes on to provide hope for those who are in grief. Anytime a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament passage, here's what you need to do. You need to go to that passage and read the full passage. Remember, they didn't have chapters and verses back then. That was added somewhere around the 12th century by a British monk riding on horseback. That's the first time we get chapters, we think. There's some other people who began to do that, so it was easy for us to categorize and to memorize Scripture. Back then, if you quote a passage, you're probably telling, you may just be quoting that verse, but oftentimes you're telling us to look at the whole passage. And that whole passage is one that starts with weeping and mourning, but turns into one of comfort. We'll look at that in just a second. But I encourage you to go back to read this and to go back and read Jeremiah 31, 15 and the whole passage around that. It's very interesting. It provides comfort, though at the time, the mothers and fathers would have been absolutely devastated. Can you imagine losing your two-year-old child and under? All slaughtered for no reason in your mind. Now, every reader of this passage who was of Jewish background would have instantly thought back to what passage? Anybody know? Every Jewish reader who read this passage in Luke, the slaughter in Bethlehem, and the Rama passage would have thought back to what passage in the Old Testament? Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. Christians don't think about that, but every Jewish believer would have instantly thought back to that. This passage is intricately woven with Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1, 21 to 22. You see, what happens here is Pharaoh, and there's a new Pharaoh who arises in Egypt. Now, we're not sure how this happens, but the new Pharaoh doesn't remember who Joseph is. If, uh, some scholars believe this. If you look at ancient Egypt, ancient Egypt, if you look at the early pictures, uh, 
you may have followed this, ancient Egypt used to be all black, right? The tribes were all black, and then one day they turn all white. And then southern Egypt becomes black, northern Egypt becomes white. How does this happen? We think that there was an invasion. We know that there was an invasion of sea peoples. The sea peoples may have been the Philistines, and they may have pushed all the way to Carthage. These sea peoples had iron. Everyone else had bronze, which was a big military advantage at the time. And so it may have been the invasion of these sea peoples that swept all the way through and just crushed everybody. So these may have been the Philistines that the Hebrews were crushed by, and they may have been somebody who crushed everybody. So these, these, and they had chariots. Everyone else at the time may not have had chariots. So it may have been a technological advantage. And it may have been that these sea peoples rose through and a new pharaoh rose. And this group did not know Joseph and the Hebrews. It may have been that. Or it may have been just some new pharaoh rises several hundred years later who doesn't care. But what happens is the Hebrew people are multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And the Egyptians are scared. So they enslave the Hebrew people for 400 years. The Hebrews keep on being blessed by God, and they grow, and they grow, and they grow. And so Pharaoh wants to kill them and cull the herd, basically. They're animals to him. He wants to cull the herd. And so he orders these, these wives, midwives, to slaughter, to kill every male child who's born, and they refuse to do it. They find a creative way to get around it. And so eventually, Pharaoh does this. Exodus 1, 21 to 22. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the slaughter of the innocents. One baby boy is saved by his father out of all of these children. But they're all thrown into the Nile. Huge swaths of baby boys thrown into the Nile, but one is saved. One out of many, Moses. And he's placed into a basket. Now what's interesting is that basket is termed as an ark in Hebrew. An ark. And it's put in, a, it's put in the Nile. And it's floated down the Nile. And the Pharaoh's wife, one of his or daughters, finds it. And Moses is the child. He becomes the salvation or the savior of Israel. So that ark term then links Moses to Noah and the ark, and he is the savior, or the savior of the world. And then you have Moses now as the salvation of Israel. And what, Mo, what, what this link then between Jesus now and Moses, and Moses and Noah, so Jesus is now linked to who? Moses and Noah, is the Noah and Moses are now anti-types or pre-types, and Jesus is the type. And what we mean by anti-type is a person or an event that foreshadows a New Testament fulfillment, a type. The anti-type is a person or an event that foreshadows a New Testament event. And so this anti-type of Moses fulfills in this in this. Um, salvation, this is foreshadows the New Testament event. And so the slaughter of the innocents is the antitype to the slaughter in Bethlehem. 
And the Savior, Moses, is the antitype, and Jesus is the type. It's another sign of who Jesus is and that he's God's son. And Jesus will passive, this is what's called Jesus' passive obedience. He has active obedience where he actively obeys and fulfills God's plans. And he has passive obedience where he passively obeys things that happen to Jesus that he could not control and he obeys. I'm giving you two big theological terms now. Three, type and anti-type and passive and active obedience. Passive obedience are the things that happens to him that he could not control. You following me? I've given you some big theological terms to hang your hats on. I'll mention them at other times. So Herod, too, has a part to play. He is simply the seed of the serpent. He's a child of sin. He is just like Pharaoh was before him. You see, we see this when he has a chance to disobey and to kill. You see, the coming of Jesus raises a burning desire within him to destroy Before, he thought, wow, I'm a good and holy guy, except for killing my sons and wives sometimes, but maybe they deserved it because they rebelled against me. But I thought that I was a good guy, and now Jesus comes, and even when I read the prophecy about who this Messiah is, instead of bending the knee and being excited, I want to murder him, just like Pharaoh did to Moses. He was trying also, when he was killing those children, to destroy the Christ child just like Cain did to Abel, Herod is showing that he is the seed of the serpent, and he is Satan's vehicle or vessel to try to destroy the Christ child. He is a slave to sin. But he's more than just your typical one. He's an active servant of Satan. He acts out in very aggressive ways to keep his power And he's contrary to the word of the Lord. So you see, just like Pharaoh, Pharaoh's later going to act that out too. Plague after plague shows who God is. And even in the face of these things, he will not bend the knee. And this is what you need to understand about some people. Many people are trapped in sin. You're going to see that and will not come to God. But there are going to be some people in your lives that you're going to run into that actively and willingly and lovingly are devoted to sin. Even if the Lord God Almighty came and stood before them and parted the Red Sea, even if they saw that, they would rebel and hate the Lord. Satan was like that. Pharaoh was like that. Herod was like that. Many of the people who put Jesus to death were like that. It's the way of the world. There are some people who, no matter what you do, are going to be like that. And that's who Herod was. There are those who will claim to serve the Lord, but when push comes to shove, they're going to bend the knee to the things of the world, the ethics of this world, the teachings of the world. And the reason is because they serve the God of this world. They claim to worship Jesus, but it is in fact a Jesus of their own making, a facsimile, an idol, an image crafted in their own image or an image of their own choosing, one that lets them do and think and believe as they will, not the one they actually find in the Bible or that sits at the right hand of God. But don't be fooled. That Jesus is not real. The real one won't be changed so easily, and there will be a day of accounting. God doesn't much care about your standards or mine. He has set things as he has set them, and they are going to happen regardless. 
Herod shows that. No matter what Herod does, he's simply an unwitting fool. And we aren't any different. When we try to stop God's plans, we aren't any different than a fool pretending he's Superman and jumping off a 10-story building pretending he can fly. He can pretend all he wants, but sooner or later, eventually reality is going to hit him. He's going to realize that he isn't. Just like we will. One day, the trumpet will sound and Jesus will come. And all of us will have to bend the knee and answer for what we have done. And we'll end with this. So Joseph takes his son to Egypt, as the angel tells him, and returns after Herod is dead, presumably living off the gifts given by the Magi and fulfilling a prophecy in a type. He re-walks the exodus through the wilderness. He re-walks the exodus fleeing the murderous king. Jesus is the type of Moses, and he is the type of Israel wandering through the wilderness and escaping for those who have eyes to see. He is the fulfillment of the hope for those weeping in Ramah. He is the fulfillment of the next part of the prophecy, Jeremiah 31, 16-17. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Praise God.